I am sort of wondering how you rolled into Ireland in the first place. I mean, I, I understand that's what happened. You were you were here, and then you went there to do ethnomusicology. Is this the correct story? Do I have this part of your biography correct? Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I, I had gotten the idea at the time. Loyola did not really have a, a study abroad program. Um, I got the idea only because my mother, when she was in college, uh, she's a retired uh, French professor, and uh, she took her junior year to study uh, in Paris with a, a homestay in, in Dijon first. And uh, then my brother, through Tulane, did his junior year abroad um, at the University of, of um, Aberdeen. And so I decided that I wanted to do this. And at the time, they had no no such program in uh, at Loyola, but I went to the Dean of Arts and Science, and uh, I showed her, you know, this is what I want to do. And and what they could do is transfer my credits through another American college. So we worked, you know, we worked that way. Um, and I was into Irish music before that. Uh, I got turned on to Irish music in high school. Um, a friend of mine, who's a very fine um, Cajun fiddle player, uh, at the time he was doing a lot of Cajun music even back then. He was playing bass when we were in high school. He was playing bass for Dewey Belfa. Wow. And uh, then um, he was playing a lot of uh, Irish music as well on the fiddle. And at the time I knew I wanted to play the mandolin. Uh, I didn't know what kind of music I wanted to play. I just knew I wanted to play the mandolin. So I got one for Christmas and uh, we'd get together and, and alternate between Irish tunes and Cajun tunes um, because you know, there was no Irish community around in Lafayette, Louisiana in 1990 and 1991. Right. And uh, the other thing is that um, I played the tunes on the mandolin with, with uh, my fingers because there was nobody around to tell me that you're supposed to play it with a pick. And I was a bass player first. So um, I still, to this day, because I'm actually left-handed, but I play a right-handed instrument, um, still to this day, I have to work a lot harder um, to get clarity on um, strumming and picking. Um, my left hand is the one that does all the fancy work, uh -huh. you know, jumping around with chords and thinking and bass lines. And I have to work a lot harder for that. But but anyway, so when I got to college, um, when I went to Loyola, there was, of course, a little bit of community at uh, O'Flaherty's Irish Pub. Things were starting to be on the, on the rise with popularity. So they were having Irish. Great. I love this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They had, they had like Irish step dancing and Irish set dancing every night. Um, somebody who would just teach you right there, you know, okay, these are some steps for some large sets like um, the siege of Venice or, or um, you know, the, the things like that. And um, so that was a really magical time. I, I found people to play with. And so, so siege I, of Venice, this is a, this is a standard Irish. Of Ennis, sorry. Of that was Ennis. A, 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 I, I, I was like, the Siege of Venice. At what point did Ireland make a play on? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it is Missley of Ennis. Of, of Ennis. Okay, good. That's good. All right. Uh, and, and, and I know there, there are a lot of things that have been misinterpreted. Um, in fact, I recently um, recorded a, an EP with my friend Hugh Morrison, uh, who's from Scotland. Uh-huh. And uh, we're because he's from Scotland and I'm from Louisiana. There's there's a popular Scottish beverage. It's like an energy drink called Iron Brew. Uh -huh. And so, but because I'm from Louisiana, we decided to call the duo Iron Rue. Oh great! And um, so it's it's got four songs on it and then one set of polkas, uh, including one that I wrote when I was about 20 years old. 
Um, I renamed it at some point, uh, like maybe 15 years ago, I renamed it um, to be Wayne Kerr's, you know, because Kerr's a, a common surname I've seen in, in uh-huh. uh, the north of Ireland and in Scotland. So, which looks innocuous on paper, but I want to see how many people read it on the radio as wankers. Um, <laughs> yeah, great. So, listen, let's, let's back up a minute then. What do you think you were seeing in Irish music? Why, what was interesting to you about that? Uh, just everything drew me in. It was so, it was so different from anything I'd experienced before. Um, I came, my parents, uh, I came from a classical background um, my parents were really hoping that I would be a classical oboe player. In fact, in fact, that's what my scholarship was to Loyola. Wow. Um, so you were good. Well, I wasn't good, but I was good enough to yeah. be, I, I, you know, for an oboe at the time, and I'm sure this is different now, but at the time I'm sure I could get just as good a scholarship as a mediocre oboe player. And I was never better than a mediocre oboe player at best. Uh-huh. Um, at, at it was uh, I could get a better scholarship as a mediocre oboe player than a top-notch flute player uh-huh. because uh-huh. of the demand. Um, and uh, I came across as sounding like a better player than I really was because I could get a good tone, just like the way that I come across as a better French speaker than I am because of my accent, uh-huh. um, or at least at the time. Uh, so you, I, the quality of your ear, you're, you're good at fi- figuring out. I'm a great bullshit artist. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, a, sound production is not a minor issue in music. <laughs> but um, but it, it's, uh, you know, there were certain things like my sight reading skills um, uh, were not as, as good. And uh-huh. my, my heart just wasn't in it. Uh-huh. Um, uh, my, my heart just was, was, was not into it. So uh, I did the best that I could. But what I really was having fun with was just discovering more and more cause, uh, about Irish music at the time that it was during a time that you had to special order the records and tapes you know yeah. for any of the kids who don't remember you know these things called cassette tapes i had to specially order them from uh from certain outlets because you couldn't find them in any stores and there was there was a a certain appeal to that exclusivity at the time it's like yeah. you know i've got this thing that nobody else knows at least not very many people just yet and you yeah. know, i'm staying into the game so you know i was 18 years old and it was a huge uh it was it was major like ego food uh, uh-huh. as well as as well as the fact that I just loved the music um and uh just found it found it very compelling uh-huh and um now and so you felt it very very compelling that way and and then um when you actually managed to make the jump to Ireland, so you were still just playing oboe or, or in bass or had you had you made a jump to any other instrument oh i uh by that time um I'd gotten my first bazooki when I was a senior in high school wow. Uh, yeah, I found one. I went to the North Texas Irish Festival um, with that same friend, and um, uh, I saw a used one that was uh, in a vendor booth, and I cashed in some savings and got it. Uh, I'd been playing the, the mandolin up till then, and I also had a tenor guitar um, that was keeping me going, but uh, I had been wanting a bazooki. Um, my friend told me about this first. Uh, he said... You know, he was getting me into bands that had the bazooki, like Planksty and Daydan and the Bothy Band. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I laughed at him because he always, he was always uh, making these malapropisms. Uh, I think at one point he was talking about the nerdy gertie. And uh, so I thought this was another one of his malapropisms. He said, you know, you really ought to play the bazooki. And I laughed in his face. Uh-huh. 
And then he gave me a CD that had bazooki on it and I felt really stupid. And then um, we started listening. I was like, wow, what's that sound? He was like, that's a bazooki. I'm like, okay, I have to have one. I didn't even know what one looked like. Like I didn't care if it was. Yeah. So you're going from, hold on, we're going to go back. We're going to keep going with that. But so, so there's a, you play mandolin already. So is this the thing with double, doubled up strings or what do you got going yeah. on? Well, it's, well, the bazooki is basically in the Irish bazooki, which is a bit of a misnomer anyway. You know, that's mm. like, you know, saying a Mexican bagpipe, as I've told people, you know, just because that's something, the bazooki is of Greek origin, Yeah. Uh, which is why it gets its, you know, it has its, its uh, ill-fitting name. Um, uh, but because it's uh it's basically an octave lower than a mandolin now there's um people are are starting to point out the differences back back when i was a kid you know it, they were all one and the same octave mandolin sitterns and irish bazookis were all the same animal now people are referring to an octave mandolin as a little shorter scale um bazooki is uh the same range but a little longer neck and a sittern as being a 10 course, I mean, a, a, I'm sorry, a five course, 10 stringed instrument. Uh -huh. And back then, I mean, I just didn't care what you called it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I was a bass player before that. I was, before uh -huh. I, I decided I wanted to play the mandolin, I was a heavy metal bass player. And this was during the time that um, you got the most credentials, the faster you could play. I mean, there was, there was a bass player out there um, who, went in the Guinness Book of World Records as being the fastest bass player. Not the best, not the most tasteful, yeah. uh, not the most musical. We're not talking about sometimes the music that comes from the silences between the notes, the spaces, the phrasing, the tone. It was, he was in the Guinness Book of World Records for how many notes he could play per second, like uh -huh. a typist on cocaine. Wow. Um, and I'm sure actually, you know, that, that he, he, did more than that. I'm. There's no doubt in my mind that he also knew how to play proper bass lines and and add to the uh, to the song and everything that bass players need to know how to do. But that was the level of crazy uh -huh. that uh, that people were going for. Whenever I'd look through guitar magazines and bass magazines. Now, how do you? What's your understanding of how how the bazooki, which is a Greek instrument, ended up in Irish music? Was it a whim from them, or was it, or what happened? It, it's uh well first it's funny because i heard i fell for this hook line and sinker which should you know but then again in my defense uh i was in my teens and didn't know about the great irish capacity to bullshit people yeah. and i was like really i was so gullible uh like i heard on a radio show that somebody said that there was a a ship with a going from from Athens to New York with a whole, you know, cargo ship full of bazookis and it crashed somewhere and, you know, and, and all these bazookis <laughs> washed up on the shore in Ireland. And, and you bought that. <laughs> I bought it. Hook, line, and singer, I bought it. And then uh, I found out uh, later that it was when I bought a book at the same festival where I, I found my first bazooki. I got a book that talked a little bit about the history and that it was introduced by one man um, by the name of Johnny Moynihan, um, and once I got, got past my crushing disappointment that it was not the fact that a bunch of bazookies washed up on the shore. <laughs> it's, um, it's, he was the one who, um, it, all it said was that he introduced the bazooki in the mid-60s to Irish music. And so when I was a student in Ireland, one of my assignments, what all, of, all the people who were doing traditional Irish music studies were doing was um, they were to go and interview um, their mentors, you uh -huh. know, who did, who, who taught you the fiddle when you're growing up or, or the box or the flute or, or whatever. 
I had no such mentor here. I was in Ireland. And, and so I just said, well, since, uh, since I'm the, the funny foreigner, can I just go uh, interview the guy who introduced the bazooka to Irish music? And Mihalo Sullivan, the late, great Mihalo Sullivan, um, said, sure, have at it. And I had met somebody in Galway who had Johnny's number, and I called him up. Um, I was 20 years old. I was nervous as hell. Oh, my God, I was so nervous. Um, I also didn't know that I had raging ADD, so I could barely put like two sentences together as I interviewed him. Um, he's uh, so he told me about it. Um, he's a very, very clever man. Um, at, at times, can be cantankerous, but in a really uh, endearing sort of way. Um, super, super smart. And what happened was that he was living in London at the time. Actually, he played, first was that he played a, um, on a cruise to Greece and came back with one. So he may have been the first person to bring the bazooki physically into Ireland, um, which sort of makes it sound like a Norwegian ship rat. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and then he was living in London um, in a, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if he was living in the Greek community or he just knew a luthier, um, who was living in the Greek community, um, but this guy was making flat-backed instruments uh, like Appalachian dulcimers and dreadnought guitars. And of course, because of what was around him, he made the first flat-backed um, Irish bazooki, so, which made it more like a big mandolin than anything else. So Johnny brought it back um, to Ireland and he started playing with a group called Sweeney's Men, which also included another great bazooki player, Andy Irvine. Now this was going on, this was sort of paralleling the American folk revival in Ireland. They had the ballad boom where all of a sudden people started buying records to actually like listen to as opposed to the more utilitarian records of jigs and reels so that you could like sit there and have something to dance to if you couldn't hire a Cayley band. So now all of a sudden people were starting to get into it. And um, because this was all new and, and different, people weren't being purists because nobody had a point of reference. Uh -huh. So they were bringing in um, influence of things, you know, uh, early American influences. Uh, later with uh, Planksty, um, Andy Irvine went on to play. With oh, he, Planksty, oh, he played with uh, Planksty. Okay. Yeah. With, and and uh, Johnny Moynihan also played with Planksty. And Andy took it in the other direction and went to Eastern Europe, of course, uh, and uh, brought back a bunch of, Eastern European tunes. So all of a sudden they'll go into these Bulgarian tunes. I mean, they were so far ahead of their time. Right. Um, even by wow. today's standards. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, my experience with Ireland, which is limited and I was Irish, but I, I grew up around a lot of Irish people in London and because I grew up in London and uh, it was surprisingly um, uh, more musical than most of the, than most of the other people that I would come across there. You know, there was all that. Yeah. Like, that had, as you said, a lot of records of all kinds of stuff, and they were into music from all over the world. And that was people's parents that were, you know, his parents were Irish and stuff like that that I would be around. You know, they really loved music, so um, so it was it was quite a different, and it was quite a different kind of emotionalism around it, uh, you know, and and the meaning that it had, and the, the sort of joy, the, the, the way you were. They, my experience was the way that they were able to exhibit joy and listen to music was totally different than the regular London folk that I was around. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. So, um, now when you, this, what did the chap who played the, the dulce, the, 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 played the bazooki for the first time, it was in Planksteed, what, what was his name again? Johnny Moynihan. 
And Johnny Moynihan, did, did, what, what, what was he playing before Bazooki? Um, he was playing all sorts of things. Um, he played, uh, he played some mandolin, um, and, um, he was telling me that he, he played the tin whistle. Um, his first instrument, somebody, um, uh, gave him a, a ukulele and, and there was music in his family. Um, for the interview, uh, I actually said, was there any music in your family growing up? And he said, at, right on cue, he said, various ladies have told me that my father had a very nice touch and he waited until I laughed, and then he said, "On the piano." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very, I was very stinker. <laughs> but a very, uh, very music world type thing there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and so, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, he, his his main thing. The funny thing is, I mean, his main thing is is that he prefers the fiddle. Um, ironically. Um, he's not a fan of accompanied Irish music, when it, especially when it comes to the jigs and the reels. Uh -huh. He actually thinks that um, that uh, the tunes are best left alone. Um, the problem is that most listeners have the attention spans of goldfish, um, yeah. so it's there. Uh, you know, for for it to reach more people, you know, you do need something. Um, I think, you know, in, in my own humble opinion, not for me. I mean, but he. And I see what he means by that because so many people have taken this and abused it. I've, you know, I've been guilty of this myself, especially when I was younger of trying to jump in there before I really knew the tunes. And that's the important thing is to really, really pay attention. Um, my students have asked me if there's any kind of formula for backing Irish tunes. I'm like, nope, you have to know every single one. You have to really get to know because every single one is going to have its little nuances. You can have similar chord progressions, but you really need to to pay attention, like know the melody uh, really intimately to know how best to enhance it because otherwise you're just, you know, going to stuff it up. Um, you know, and I was asking him what some of his pet peeves were, including if somebody is too loud, if they don't know the music. One thing that he absolutely hates is if something is in a uh, a minor key and somebody goes down to the, um, to the major, you know, and keep, you know, you know, even if it's just a wall, even if it's just a passing chord, uh -huh. um, it drives him nuts. Yeah. So I got so self-conscious that when I back minor tunes, I might hit that chord, but I won't do it in that particular order. Like, uh -huh. you know, I'll jump around a little bit and, and try to try to avoid the Johnny Moynihan chord. Uh -huh, that's interesting. He said, and when I asked him, when I said, um, how do you feel when people credit you for introducing the bazooki to Irish music, he says, I will admit that I am the person who introduced the bazooki to Irish music, but I will not accept responsibility for the way it is played. <laughs> so, and, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense now. I, I didn't get it when I was 20, but I get it now. Uh-huh. So, um, the, the, so the main way, the, so up until you went to Ireland, would you say that, I mean, the main way you learned stuff was just by listening to records and working the tunes. I mean, would you say the way, the main way that you, that the process that you learned that you got into for learning that music at that depth was really just to saturate yourself in learning the melodies and trying to play the melodies on the instrument, the lines, basically that's, this was your way of doing it. Or? There was that for, for the first couple of years, but then also um, I joined a trio. I had, an amazing secret weapon, like like many uh, uh, many stories begin. I had a mentor, um, and that was my friend Richie Stafford. Uh, so my first Irish band was um, a trio that consisted of of Richie, who played flute and fiddle, uh -huh. 
mm-hmm. uh, and my friend Justin Murphy, who later on went to play with me in the Poor Claire's. And then there was me and they need somebody to back the tunes. And I was just like, for the first couple of years, I was just like beating the hell out of my bazooki because I was coming out of a Cajun tradition because I also had played Cajun music. Seriously rhythmic. You know, I was about as subtle as a turd in a goldfish bowl. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, but Richie, we, we would get together. I mean, Justin was just starting out and I was just starting out, but we would meet on a regular basis at Richie's house. Um, Richie, who was uh, born in Sligo, grew up in um, Ballyfermot, Dublin, which is um, notoriously rough, but it's where a lot of great music traditions come from. A lot of the traveling music uh, tradition comes from there. And uh, so Richie had this fantastic collection of vinyls, um, of, of records that, you'd be hard pressed to find in, in vinyl stores even today. Uh-huh. Um, he had been doing an Irish radio show uh, in New Orleans for a while. He was the guy on, on OZ before Sean O'Mara took it over. Wow. And uh, so we would get together and he would play these recordings. Um, he taught me a lot about etiquette. Um, he, I mean, there was, there were still some things that I learned the hard way, uh, but he, he, he set me straight about a lot of things about a lot of erroneous shit that I was just saying on stage. And Richie was the one who said, Hey, actually this is the case. And he sat me down. And so by the time I got to Ireland, I did have some preparation and some idea of what to say and what to do. Cause I could have made some serious faux pas uh-huh. uh, by the time I got there. And so Richie spared me that. Um, so he was, uh, so, so I did have some, idea of what I was doing by the time I got there. Uh-huh. And so, um, and you mentioned the great somebody who said, yes, you should go away and interview uh, the Pazuki player. Uh, Mihalo Suloin, um, he was the head of the trad music studies department at University College Cork. Um, he was the one who had taken over um, the role of Sean O'Riera, um, who was the guy who had essentially put the chieftains together. Oh, that's um, who had blended um, Irish music with classical music. And by classical, in this case, I'm talking about its level of cultivation and not necessarily what we associate with Western European art music. But you can keep explaining that in a minute, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, he was just uh, a living, we're not a, not insa- he was a living library. Mo- just a wonderful human being. Um, his lectures were always just intriguing. Um, they would last for an hour and I would think that you would think that 20 minutes had passed. I mean, I hung on to every single word he said. Um, just an amazing person. Uh-huh. And so the level of, let's go back to just a second because I think this is, might be interesting for uh, people that are interested in music that all together discussions in it. But you just mentioned the difference between classical, classicality in relation to its level of I guess, did you say acculturation or something rather than, uh, rather, than its, yeah. rather, rather than its relationship with, with, uh, with that. So let's, let, let me just go, let, let's just, let me just go there a minute because I, so I think it, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like, you know, it's very hard for people to get into an understanding of like what the different, uh, I think what the differences are like we, we're in a very a polarizing time of black and white as to whether people are traditionalists or whether they, whether they, you know, whether you can have fusion things or not. And I think that, I think the discussion ends up more nuanced with the thing you're, with, with this subject you brought up there. So that's why I want to talk about it in this context. It doesn't get a lot, it doesn't get a lot there. And, and I think people's uh, freedom and 
and less of the folk police mentality would 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 work. It would go better if this was understood. I think maybe what you're getting at. So I'm going to go there. Uh, sorry for this long introduction to question, but um, what in because you're trained, you know, you, you clearly got some understanding in that. What is your understanding of what that supplies, the the, the level of acculturation in that in, in that in that stuff that's in the music from the, from that? Well, yeah, it's that way. It's uh, it's it's uh, just a way of of looking at things a little differently because most of us here, uh, most of us Westerners, when we talk about classical music, for one thing, um, that lumps um, all periods together um, past uh, Baroque. Well, I mean, people will still consider Baroque. They'll consider um, classical, romantic, contemporary. I know I'm probably missing something important anything here. With, anything with violins, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, everything, everything from from Baroque onward. Um, yeah. You know, people uh, will will lump under the classical section. Uh, even a lot of early music um, before that, you know, Renaissance and medieval um, is. If you're in a record store, that's probably you'll. Most people will find. Uh, unless it's something really, really specialized, most people will find early music in that same sure. section of a record store. Um, but um, classical, the first time I heard um, sitar music referred to, for instance, as Indian classical music, you know, is true to my Cajun upbringing. I was like, huh? What that you say, I don't understand that, me. Huh? But it's, and it, and it, but it forces you to think outside of that Western. European um, uh, term um, that you know we're talking classical to mean just the level of cultivation and when you're t and the reason that I know this about Indian music is that half the year that I was in Ireland I took traditional Irish music studies and then the other half was ethnomusicology well where uh, Mel Mercier took over so we had uh, courses in Indian classical music, both from the North and the South, and the two are very, very different from each other. Uh, Indonesian music, West African music, a little bit of Caribbean. Uh, but did, I, you I get, can't, did you get to fool around with the gamelan? We we did we did have a at the time we did not have a gamelan at UCC, but Mel was talking about getting a um, getting some gamelan instruments. I don't remember if they were going to be palog or slendro, the two types of I usually get note systems. Usually get, usually get them both, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know I did it a long time because I, 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 I love it. And I always feel, I, in a way, I feel funny about, you know, I, I talked to, there was a composition teacher at UNO until recently that we were talking about how to get a gamelan in, in Louisiana because Louisiana is one of the only states that doesn't have a gamelan. Yeah. But anyway, carry on. I don't know. I met somebody... In New Orleans, this was pre-Katrina, but I remember having this discussion with somebody who had some gamelan instruments, and he, you know, so we talked for a little bit. There might be somebody out there, because um, I, I remember having had this discussion. But with uh, going back to the classical music of India, yeah. it is so much more complex than you can even fathom. I mean, yeah. with a raga, which people talk about as, as uh, describing, oh, it's like a scale. It is nothing like a scale. Right. Um, it's only in the set in the in the sense that it is a send uh, a set of ascending and descending pitches, but each uh, movement of note to note if, uh, has its own little set of rules. So if you jump from this note to this note, then it, you all, you have to do this kind of ornamentation. Or uh, it's just it takes a student two years to learn one raga. Yeah, and it, it's I mean it's it's got a level of complexity that I can barely wrap my head around. 
Yeah, um, training there. It's you know here's a curious feature. Uh, you know, I bring it up to the both musicians, but you know, it's funny because the more you get into what what they're calling classical music and Western stuff, you know, the, you know, the differentiation that you can tell a lot of time between the things that we consider masterworks and all that is that is it the scales used in there and the ways the scales are used also have tendencies and directions. And this is the reason why the masterworks take the shape that they do in classical music and why other things don't, which is very peculiar because we we have a mentality that uh, that the music here doesn't have that. I'm not sure how this came about, but that I think that even that even uh, uh, even something as simple as the major scale doesn't have tendency, which it does, and so we you know we have we have punches of a hundreds of years of of it built in um, uh, melodic fragments and stuff that are sure that show up repetitively to the point that that things do have these tendencies or, or custom customary ways in which things in which things go so it, uh, sometimes it's but of course it's vastly more complicated in the raga system i'm not saying that i'm just saying it's very funny because i think oddly enough the thing that differentiates really great music or the things that we can that last that we consider great even in even in that body of music that you're talking about from medieval music up until up until the thing is, is things that have a recognition of the fact of a certain tendency in the even in that simple scalar form. Anyway, I'm done with that little diatribe now because this is really about you, but I sometimes go that direction. Oh, I don't mind. I'm sick of me. I'm, I'm happy to hear you. <laughs> no, it's not really me. It's just that, it's just that anyway, because I'm going to expand on this in a minute. It's a, well, part of the reason is to make it expository for anyone, anyone that jumps in, you know, so they know what the whole direction we're talking about. So go ahead. So we're into the complexity of Indian classical music, Raga system, the difference in Carnatic music and North Indian, North Indian music, and uh, people thinking that it's a scale, that particular, that particular situation. And where are you gonna go from there? Um, well, I mean, I, there was so, so much to learn and I had one year to learn it all. And there's so much, there are different classes I would have taken if I'd known what they were. For instance, Mel was teaching a class, it was an elective in conical, which oh, is, wow. yeah, for those who don't know, it's a way of having mnemonic syllables that represent different sounds on the, on the drums as opposed to the, to North India, where you have basically the tablas, uh, which I think means two drums. They're considered one, even though it's, it's two. You have an entire, uh, yeah, you have an entire ensemble in, uh, in South music. You have the Maradangam, which is a, a double-headed uh, drum that you, you play crosswise. There's a Kanjira, which is like a, a tambourine uh, with one jangle that, that has a, that's a lizard skin. You have a, a morsing, which is like a Jew's harp, and you have a gatam, which is like a big clay pot. It actually helps. It's like it's like a guitar on it. It helps to play. I've been told if you have like a pot belly. Um, yeah. So by the end of the uh, quarantine, maybe I'll get myself a, uh, a gatam. Oh, I love but, the sound of it. There's a wonderful guy that plays with uh, with uh, uh, John McLaughlin in the Shakti group. Uh, oh, Shakti, yeah. So killer. And 